Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest for this first of two podcasts, Dr. Stephen Gortmaker, who's a professor of the practice of health sociology, the Department of Society, Human Development and Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. A prolific researcher, uh, Steve has contributed to the field of obesity, diet, nutrition, and public health in general in a number of ways over the years, and has done some groundbreaking work on the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is how does one guess what obesity policies will be most effective out there in the world? So welcome, Steve. Delighted to have you here. Uh, thanks, Kelly. So let's talk about obesity policies, and I'd like to get into some of the science of how you study this, because my own belief is you do the best work of anybody in the world on this. But first, what are some of the policies that are kind of out there in the mix now, and what are people thinking about as policies to address the obesity issue? Well, people think about a broad range of policies. Uh, generally, um, people study a lot of tame policies, I think, uh, things that may not make a large difference. Uh, let's. Um, figure out ways to um, make it easier to uh, be a little more physically active in different environments, um, uh, uh, policies that might uh, make it easier to buy foods in different neighborhoods. Uh, these could be federal policies, state policies, local policies, even institutional policies, like uh, when I go to a meeting, uh, do they have um, healthy foods at the meetings or not? In a corporation, it could be a huge range of things. Well, it was interesting that you referred to these as tame policies and things not likely to make a big difference. Now, given the severity of the obesity problem, why would we be approaching this in a tame way rather than a, a bold, assertive, and aggressive way? Well, I think a lot of the policies that might make a big difference are unfortunately policies that um, may have vested interest opposing them. A classic example would be like a tax on uh, sugar water or sugar-sweetened beverages opposed by a very powerful industry. And so it tends to be off the table for a lot of policymakers. Okay, so if we look at the, the range of policies out there, there's so many things a government, a legislator could potentially do. You could work on changing foods in schools. You could work on the physical activity part. You could try to correct the food desert problem, taxes, as you mentioned, restricting marketing. There's so many different possible ways to do it. One thing I admire about your work is that you're helping sort through all this that people have so far been approaching more or less on an intuitive level. Let's try to guess what's going to work and providing some scientific substance for thinking about policies. And you published what I thought was a very influential paper in The Lancet last year on this where you looked at policies. So could you tell us a little bit about how you approach this from an empirical and scientific point of view? Well, we try and select policies to study that potentially could have a very substantial population impact. Um, and at the same time, we want to take into account the, the cost of those policies. So we're really looking for policies that potentially provide the best value for money, the best place to spend your money if you're going to make policy change. Unfortunately, though, in the United States, um, we tend not to take that approach. Our health care policy at this point in time is only focused on what's effective and really not what's cost effective or what's the best value for money. So even though a lot of the um, techniques if we're doing cost-effective analysis, we're actually developed in this country. We, in fact, don't use that approach very much in the world of health or in the area of nutrition and obesity policy. Um, 
but I think that can change. Now, there's a catch-22, isn't there, that when you, you want to know in advance how well a policy works, but very often you don't know how a policy works until you actually do it. So how do you, how do you try to estimate the impact a policy will have if they haven't really been tried yet? Well, if they haven't been tried, that's very difficult. Um, a lot of policies are tried out, though, in uh, more limited settings. It could be in states or uh, communities. So, for example, school systems may ban sugar-sweetened beverages, and you may be able to see uh, the impact of that on kids' uh, intake. Um, states may impose uh, taxes or may pose different kinds of regulations or policies in different uh, settings, and you may be able to study those as natural experiments. And I think our first uh, choice is to try and identify all the kind of natural experiments or a possible, um, actually randomized experiments to study. If that's not available, we may then try and model, uh, model the results based on uh, knowledge and the best evidence we have. Uh, one example of that would be before uh, people started putting taxes on cigarettes, economists estimated what effect the tax would have on changing uh, consumption of cigarettes. And they came up with pretty good estimates that actually turned out to be pretty accurate. Um, if you raise the price of something, people tend to consume less. How do you know um, how much these policies will cost to implement? Because very often people don't report that in, say, writing up of these types of mm -hmm. policies. So how can you estimate that? A lot of policies are pretty easy to estimate because there are similar policies in place. For example, we have uh, excise taxes on lots of things, uh, fishing gear, for example. And you can call uh, departments of uh, government in different states and find out how much it costs to um, uh, collect these excise taxes and make pretty good estimates. So can you explain what you found then so far about modeling these policies and what appears to be most promising, most impactful at the best cost? Well, thus far we've... Um, uh, colleagues of ours in Australia have modeled out about 20-some uh, uh, policies, and ourselves, we've modeled uh, just a few policies in the United States. Um, it seems like a couple of the most cost-effective policies are not surprises, um, and these include uh, policies that um, one might limit the marketing of th things like junk foods and beverages uh, to kids by taking away the uh, tax deduction that corporations get for marketing products to kids. Uh, uh, right now, if a uh, corporation like McDonald's, uh, for example, or Coca-Cola spends money marketing to kids, that's a tax deduction. If you were to eliminate that tax deduction, they'll probably spend less in that area. And we've modeled that out. Um, eliminating that tax deductibility is a very uh, cost-effective strategy for reducing children's intake, for example, of sugar-sweetened beverages and unnecessary calories. Oh, so I guess that would be cost-effective, apparently, because it would be both effective but wouldn't really cost very much to implement. Right, exactly, from a societal perspective. Uh, the same is true of a excise tax on sugar-sweetened beverages, like one penny per ounce, we found is very cost-effective, uh, likely to be very cost-effective at the state level uh, to both reduce um, long-term uh, disability, uh, disability-adjusted life years, we call them, to save money from Medicare and Medicaid, and to actually um, bring in a lot of tax money at the same time that can be used for other purposes, 
including uh, to help obesity reduction programs, nutrition, physical activity programs. So you've done a lot of very interesting scientific work on the topic of sugar-sweetened beverages, and we'll come back and talk about that in a second podcast. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to go back to the modeling of policies in general. Um, Do you have a sense that the people in the position to change policy are paying attention to the the kind of work that you're doing, and are is it being is there good uptake into the world of people who are making those decisions? I think that um, it depends on the policies. I think the policies in some areas, like let's say early childhood uh, settings, policymakers there are very interested in policies that can improve the nutrition and physical uh, activity vi- uh, environments of young children. And I think they've been pretty receptive around the United States to making policy changes. Uh, Once you start talking about um, with the adult world, and if you raise the phrase tax, you'll find much less receptivity, although I think it's just a question of time. Um, It's just a question of time. I mean, I remember years ago in the early uh, years of uh, tobacco when people weren't seriously thinking that you could actually put a tax on uh, tobacco or really restrict marketing or restrict consumption in public places. And, um, in fact, all those initiatives have been very successful and embraced by a lot of um, states and municipalities. And ultimately, I think you'll see things like that happening in other areas of nutrition and physical activity. Do you think it makes sense for the field to focus um some or even most of its resources on prevention and on children? Well, one thing we found, um, uh, in a nutshell, yes, uh, but uh, one thing we found and um, documented in some of our studies is that the change that you need to make with children is so much smaller than the changes you need to make with adults just because of their size. Uh, Children really aren't born obese. They become obese in our society. And the changes in terms of energy intake and physical activity you need to make to alter the energy balance or imbalance currently in kids is so much smaller. We think it's, it's a great way to start, a focus there. So you reminded me of something very important that you've contributed to our thinking in the country about this, is this concept of the calorie gap, which I think is what, what you were referring to here. Could you explain the concept and what you found with that? Right. We refer to it as the energy gap. And among um, children, it's just the average imbalance every day that is contributing to the average weight gain seen in the United States. So children are gaining about half a pound a year, adults about a pound a year. And so we're talking about a certain energy gap or excess calories intake that kids take in versus what they burn through physical activity. And for the obesity epidemic in the United States, we currently figure that among children, the change on average is about 100, 140 calories a day that you need would need to make to really flatten out and start to reduce uh, this epidemic substantially. So it's interesting because when you, looping back to the policy issues we were talking about, it sounds like some of the things that might have the greatest impact, like you mentioned taxes, and you also mentioned changes in tax policy for marketers, for the people marketing foods. Those policies, while they might have the greatest impact, of course, are going to create the greatest resistance, as you said, from the companies who are very powerful. Um, in thinking about this in a political way rather than a strategic way, does it make sense to start with some of these policies that you might consider tame 
because they're not going to have a great impact, but they're foot in the door. They're getting people thinking about government being involved in obesity policy in general. Is there any any sense in approaching things like that in that sort of way, or do you think you should go right for the high-impact policies? Oh, but I think you're absolutely right there. A good place to start would be uh, things like um, don't have sugar-sweetened beverages in schools. Another great place to start would be don't be selling sugar-sweetened beverages in your major hospitals. And if you start to restrict uh, um, sales of substances like sugar-sweetened beverages, which are unnecessary for health and contribute to obesity and disease, um, in these kinds of settings, you'll get people really thinking about them and um, uh, potentially starting to build more political support for broader changes. You know, I'm so grateful, and I know the field is as well, for this work that you're doing, because otherwise we're having to go ahead with our best guess about what might work. And once in a while you guess right, but a lot of times you don't. And uh, since so much is being invested in the nation's um, attempt to deal with childhood obesity, especially by foundations like Robert Wood Johnson, um, it's important that the right things get done are the things that are going to have the biggest impact. So the work that you're doing, looking at both the cost and effectiveness of is really very important. What do you think the next generation of work in this topic or this field will be? Well, I think the next generation is probably going to be getting much more specific about a whole range of different variations on policies that can likely be implemented in the real world. Um, and to really be creative uh, about that. And we, I mean, I'm still struck in how many environments I step into where I'm offered um, sugar-sweetened beverages as an option when I really don't need it, or an unhealthy um, food that has a lot of unhealthy fats uh, associated with it, and, um, or just a lot of refined carbs when I really don't need that many, or huge portion sizes. And uh, if we can start to figure out creative ways to really alter those default options uh, uh, for people in ways that are still give people pl- uh, plenty of choice, Um, I think we could really start to make a dent in this epidemic. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, for sharing your work with us. Thank you, Kelly. So our guest is Dr. Stephen Gortmaker, a professor in the Harvard School of Public Health. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. There you'll find a wide variety of resources on food and food policy issues, an email newsletter that gets dispatched every other week, and, of course, a list of other podcasts with excellent visitors who have come to the Rudd Center. Thank you.